Welcome to the Novelty of Doom, a podcast wherein we explore narratives as they provoke questions as to how humanity responds to calamity, provoking new modes of thinking ethically with each successive catastrophe. Here, we journey over the world and into the past to ask questions not only about tragedy, but also about why stories matter and why the work of those who keep those stories is ever so crucial in a precarious world. We hope you enjoy listening. Thank you for joining us. There are four of us here on this conversation and we wanted to get started by introducing ourselves. Hello everyone, my name is Saloni Mahajan. I am originally from New Delhi, India. I am getting my PhD in performance studies from University of Hawaii. My research revolves around costumes and dress for performances, finding connections in the many different areas of research related to dress. Hey everyone, I'm Anna Johnson, went to school in DC and then spent much of my 20s living and working in Palestine before I started a PhD program at Notre Dame in sociology and peace studies. My research focuses on the role of educational tourism in Palestine for people learning about the situation and getting involved. In social movements. I'm Benjamin Hoover. I'm a PhD student in Indiana University in the English department. My research works really on the on medieval theater, medieval drama, and the kinds of blurry boundaries between genres that happens when the different writers kind of mesh up against each other. I'm Bethany Johnson. I'm in my fourth year. I'm writing my dissertation for the University of South Carolina. I'm getting my PhD in the history of STEM. My dissertation project is on the post-pandemic period in Philadelphia, what some folks call the Spanish flu, and I look closely at the 1919 to 1923 period. When we first started out, it was kind of difficult to find any sort of real thread to to pull these things together as part of the noble endeavor, perhaps, to to make something work. We found these kinds of thorough lines of performance of the importance of humanities and humanities research in collecting narratives and also talking about narratives in, in ethical ways and making sure that we're responsible in, in how we talk about and discuss these stories. No matter what our research is, no matter how divergent it sounds on the surface, we all have a question about whose stories we can tell and how we should tell them. In some ways, it's like the beginning of a joke when a historian, medievalist, designer, and a sociologist walk into a room. What happens and where do we end up? I think it was actually a really beautiful experience to to try to do that with you all. So I would echo the same thing, that it is such a beautiful experience and that is the essence of humanities and a work that all of us do is to kind of actually do a performance in in itself and start from this one topic and and finding our own ways to use it in our own research and having that thread kind of go across all of our research and all the stories that come in this podcast kind of show those the way performance narratives the body and somewhere the theme of death have been a constant theme and something that we all had such amazing conversations about where our listeners would get different perspectives. If I can map out a little of our episode today what is going to follow this short opening conversation is that you'll hear an intro from each of the scholars, and then you'll get to hear us contending with these themes in a short piece of our own work. We'll come back at the end of the episode and get into a deeper conversation about what it was like to make these pieces and what we learned from each other. 
My research primarily focuses on costumes for performances. However, in the process of identifying a common thread within the diverse and amazing group, I unexpectedly encountered a verse from a sacred Hindu scripture. This verse not only offered me a new outlook on the inevitability of death, but also enabled me to establish connections between this spiritual concept and a facet of our daily existence. Remarkably, this revelation aligns seamlessly with the focus of my research. Just as a person sheds worn-out garments and wears new clothes, likewise at the time of death, the soul casts off its worn-out body and enters a new one. This verse is derived from chapter 2, verse 22 of the Bhagavad Gita, a sacred Hindu scripture originating from the later part of the first millennium. The verse offers a symbolic perspective linking the cyclical aspect of life and death to the everyday familiar practice of just changing clothes. This is embedded within the dialogue between Lord Krishna and warrior Arjuna in the epic of Mahabharata. This teaching imparts the timeless wisdom that only the physical body is susceptible to destruction while the soul endures eternally. But for someone engaged in the study of costumes for performances, this verse with the analogy that body is as interchangeable as garments offers a unique lens through which to interpret the lesson. Overall, the field of critical studies related to costume is a relatively new development, where scholars continuously explore frameworks for examining dress including all kinds of extraneous representation within performances and the diverse connections they establish. Despite ongoing efforts, many scholars emphasize the absence of a significant canon of literature or established methods for costume inquiry in history. In contrast, amidst various ancient Indian scriptures, numerous frameworks emerge. In this particular verse, Bhagavad Gita provides a philosophical foundation, seamlessly intertwining the temporal nature of costumes or the body with the eternal essence of the soul. In doing so, it enhances my comprehension of the interconnectedness between the fleeting material world and the lasting spiritual realm. It also makes me wonder about the incredible way in which the scripture underscores the notion that just as the body is to a soul, extraneous representation is to a person, suggesting that despite the interchangeability, both hold significance. Any dress or costume similar to the body plays an important role in shaping one's narrative and distinguishing oneself as a character in the grander scheme of existence. Alternatively, from a different point of view within the world of dramatic performances, the analogy of the body as interchangeable as garments reinforces the notion that actors embark on this ongoing journey of metamorphosis, transitioning from one character to the next. Comparable to the eternal soul, performers navigate a perpetual cycle of transformation from one dramatic presentation to another. These perspectives introduce a spiritual depth in the exploration of both costumes and performances, revealing the various ways in which they reflect the teaching found in the sacred verse of the Bhagavad Gita. What began just as an attempt to align with the podcast theme on performance, body and death has opened a new realm for me to delve into, conduct further research, explore and study, ultimately contributing to filling gap in the existing research. The following comes from my notes after a research visit with a university professor in the city of Nablus in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Already by the time this was written in May of 2023, dozens of Palestinians had been killed in this area of Palestine. 
It's been less than 24 hours since I was with Sa'id, and I already find my mind distanced from the experience of being with him in Nablus. I could tell in some ways that I was already dissociating when I was with him, and he was reciting poetry to me and telling me about his mother's assassination during the First Intifada, and showing me videos of himself talking about the city of Nablus, as well as a video of a British woman reading a poem that he wrote and she found for a Palestine demonstration. She starts to cry at the end of the video, and I smiled because it was sweet, realizing as I did so that this was not the expected reaction. Sa'id said, I cry every time she starts to cry. The barrage of deeply personal stories or poetry was overwhelming, but my reaction was to create a certain distance between what I was hearing and my feeling world. I think this was facilitated by his interspersing of videos of himself telling the same information he was telling me in person. I did not, for instance, ask him to tell me what happened to his mother, because I knew he had done so in video, and I could watch it rather than have him relive it. But I think it enabled me to embody a certain kind of spectator, listening for information to follow up on as a researcher, but not for the emotive and embodied feelings hearing such stories might evoke. I visited Sa'id on the university campus, and after chatting for a while, he told me he would take me to his mother's grave after his afternoon class. I had been planning to leave Nablus early to ensure I could make it all the way back to Bethlehem, but he insisted that this was important and that I would still be able to get home. I attended his afternoon class, and then we left the university and began walking down the narrow sidewalks of one of Nablus's main roads. As we walked, Said frequently remarked on the trash strewn along the route, despite his myriad efforts to organize cleanups in the city. After 20 minutes, we arrived at the gates of the cemetery. Stretching across a hill east of the old city, the cemetery was a peaceful respite from the bustling city street. As we walked in, I could see mourners scattered at gravesides down the main path, but we veered off to the side and walked up a hill to a grave that lay separated from the others around it. The tombstone was elevated on a concrete platform with benches on three sides, and the whole platform was covered by a simple metal roof. This was his mother's grave. Sa'id was displeased by the accumulation of debris and trash near the grave and retrieved a broom from the top of the roof to sweep the area clean. After a few minutes, we continued down the main path towards the fresh graves, of which there were many. Set with red, green, and black type, these graves were surrounded by Palestinian flags, flowers, and other mementos remembering the recently assassinated martyrs. A few young men and women were crouched beside several of the graves. Two very young boys, perhaps seven or eight, were hanging around, and Sa'id spoke to them, asking who they were and who they were there for. Their brother was one of the martyrs, and Sa'id insisted that we walk through the cemetery to his grave as well with the two boys. The whole experience was surreal. Sa'id was speaking loudly to me in English about the martyrs, and I just kept repeating, Aliyarhamho, or Aliyarhamhum, may God have mercy on them, at each grave and for each story. What else was there to say? Haram, shame. It all felt so empty. Several times he stopped to recite the Fatiha for people. By many of the graves, he remarked, This is the son of my friend. He pointed out the section of the cemetery where faded tombstones marked the graves of martyrs from the first and second intifadas. He told me he starts every tour of Nablus in the cemetery because he wants people to understand the end result of occupation. This is where it's headed. 
this is where it leads. He wants people to stand amidst the actual graves and contemplate the brutality of the occupation. By the time we left the cemetery, I almost felt as if I had left my body as well. I had no more questions, no meaningful commentary, or even words of solace. The experience drives home for me how important local context is for defining what people will want visitors to know about their city and about their lives. And in a year like this, it makes sense that the cemetery would be the place to start in Neblis. Although it's not the place to end. We ended in a sweet shop down the road for a Nablusi delicacy and strong sips of Arabic coffee. I am left haunted by this experience, by the memory of his mother, may God protect her, and of the many martyrs whose graves we passed, may God grant them peace, and by the professor who lifted his shirt in the middle of a street in downtown Nablus to reveal the scars on his abdomen left by multiple bullet wounds, and by my own questions, what is my responsibility did I need to see this, to believe it, to understand the depth of the catastrophe and the visceral reality of the grief? How does seeing it change me, and what further responsibility does it impart? How will I carry and honor the weight of these experiences and the weight of witnessing this year of violence without flattening the story? Few images express the calamities of 14th century England better than the metaphor of the Wheel of Fortune, though this should not be confused with the modern game show. Popularized as a way to depict the inconstant nature of the world, the personified figure of fortune holds the span of society aboard her wheel, turning it at random, elevating the low, and deposing those on high. Following a century of such repeated calamities as continual war with France, the catastrophe of bubonic plague, the political upheavals of popular revolt, and the deposition of the king, it is fitting that subsequent writers might be racked with the anxiety of their worlds falling apart. In searching for any semblance of stability, meditation on one constant of the human experience, dying, somewhat grotesquely proved generative for the poets and dramatists of 15th century England. For instance, in the poetic and artistic tradition of the Dance of Death, death is depicted as interweaving between the social hierarchy, commanding all to join his procession to the grave. Within this sweep of dialogue and movement, the various individuals to whom death speaks, whether they be kings, bishops, merchants, or beggars, are all corralled to the same inevitable fate. And though death is non-negotiating, and somewhat impassive to the pleas of the other dancers, his attitude can be sympathetic to those who suffered in life. I want to linger in particular on the figure of the laborer within 15th century writer John Lydgate's version of the poem, to whom death says, You laborer, who in sorrow and pain have led your life in so great travail, you must also join my dance, but do not disdain, for it won't help you if you do. And the reason I come to you now is only for this, to bring you from this false world that so often fails people. It is foolish to want to live forever. The laborer gets a word in, responding to death. I have wished so many times for death, although I would rather now flee from him. I would rather put myself in the discomfort of the wind and rain and pushing of the plow and toil for my reward with spade or pick delving and digging, pushing my cart, 
but I say plainly now that in this world there is no rest. Death marks the reader or the viewer's understanding of the laborer with a note of sympathy. We are presented with an image of labor's toil, especially as it extends to the pain of the body. But in thinking about narrative agency, listening to the laborer provides a moment that voices this pain, while also expressing the importance of his work to himself. This small moment within a much longer poem displays a valuing of what the labor does, and in spite of the pain, the laborer ascribes greater meaning to work that is so often neglected and forgotten. This complicated coexistence of pain and value reminds readers and scholars that people and their stories contain multitudes, and part of what humanist scholars might need to do as attendance to these stories is to not limit how people speak for themselves. I've long been interested in epidemics. Early 20th century influenza, sometimes called the Spanish flu, which traveled the world from 1918 to 1920, is no exception, particularly because, for decades, historians referred to the pandemic as lost or forgotten. In the last five years, scholars have come to more complex conclusions. In what follows, I explore two post-pandemic narratives from Philadelphia. It's December 6, 1918, and the ballroom of the Bellevue Stratford, a lavish hotel in Philadelphia, holds over 300 people. Celebrating over a catered lunch, attendees in their finest clothing and hats surround tables set with linen and crystal. Some women wear crisp military uniforms. The room is so packed that the waitstaff squeezes sideways between the tables. Trays held aloft. Patriotic bunting hangs from the mezzanine, and in the right-hand corner of the picture, a banner shows the name and logo of the emergency aid aides, a group of women volunteers who worked on the home front throughout the Great War. Some of the city's most distinguished citizens are seated on a platform at the front of the room, including Mayor Smith and well-regarded society matrons. This image, published in the Evening Public Ledger, shows the city returning to normal after a crisis. The article records speakers praising the emergency aid's efforts during the influenza emergency in October. Twelve gold medals are awarded to young emergency aid workers who unflaggingly risked their lives caring for the ill in homes or hospitals and running the motor corps that transported nurses, doctors, and patients. The narrative is one of triumph in the face of death. On January 3, 1919, a concerned Philadelphian W.H. describes the physical fallout of the epidemic at streetcar stops. They state, The influenza has left hundreds of persons with weak hearts, and I see some of them daily dragging themselves up the stairs, panting and ready to fall over on account of the exertion. I daily expect to hear that some folks have dropped over dead. This op-ed offers an alternative narrative in which city inhabitants' lives and health are altered, and surviving is not the end of the story. Indeed, in the week following the Bellevue-Stratford meeting, death records reveal a mini-wave of influenza, driving up new cases, hospitalizations, and death through January, when WH commented on the health of the local populace. In fact, 25 people died of influenza on the day of the emergency aid gold medal ceremony. Given the scarcity of public monuments or other commemorative materials marking the 1918 pandemic, one could conclude that Philadelphians left influenza behind to focus on demilitarization after the Great War. Another interpretation, however, is that inhabitants followed the outcome of the war alongside the low thrum of existential dread, common in a time when epidemic diseases took many lives each year. This is not something that would have occurred to me prior to the COVID-19 outbreak. I've read about the horrors of the pandemic 
and wondered how communities failed, refused, or forgot to slow down and memorialize the catastrophe they weathered. Scholars have argued that the flu was overshadowed by the armistice, that the horror was so enormous people couldn't face it, or that the epidemic disappeared as quickly as it arrived, and that's why it was forgotten. That isn't what I'm finding. During COVID, the waves seemed to overlap, creating the impression of a constant stream of cases punctuated by tidal waves representing new strains like Delta or Omicron. Living through a global pandemic showed me that it's hard to pick a time to commemorate something that feels as if it never ends. Now, when I view the emergency aid's festive celebratory banquet, and just over a month later, I find op-eds and other articles in the Philadelphia press describing post-influenza health impacts, economic hardship, and new cases, it is clear to me that Philadelphians did commemorate their communal struggle to survive influenza, even as the disease continued to infect their neighbors. As we know, the outcomes of a crisis are neither few nor simple. By exploring narratives of triumph and accomplishment in concert with suffering and devastation, I can represent the experiences of a broader range of people and understand and explain the pandemic aftermath they inhabited. Our listener might be wondering, what do these have to do with each other? Um, We've really taken you to different places of the globe, different points in time, and we see a lot of connections I think that one of the things that really came out of your story, Anna, is the pausing on every one of the graves and honoring in every one of the graves. And I think that in some ways, the work that almost metaphorically as the work of a humanity scholar right, is to is to kind of really work out moments of pause and to really kind of use those moments of pausing as a way of memorializing events, tragedies, happenings, doom, calamity, whatever word you might want to attribute to that in a way that forces us not to forget what happened. And so I, I think within that, we've seen also the ways in which that even in these these stories of great tragedy, that there is this kind of optimism that comes out of it by thinking through how these things can build community in, in some really, I think, revealing revealing ways. Yeah, and also the overall thing that we all started with, the act of what is a performance. Narratives have this one thing in common where, you know, it is not just a dramatic or, you know, we think of theater and films and entertainment performance, but how the performance of everyday life for something like changing your garments can connect to something which is, you know, to do with the life cycle. But at the same time, what you see performance to be when somebody is narrating their story, which is so close to their heart and how somebody perceives that and how the listener perceives that everything all of that is a performance from when a professor comes and open up their shirt and there are gun wounds on it so there's the performance of coming out and and showing that but also what has happened behind it every single thing that we do from sitting in a hotel room and, and having to discuss the situation or or even thing that happened throughout the pandemic during the time that uh, Bethany you're mentioning or even you know the connections that you made with COVID a lot of things that happened maybe all of us and all the listeners have their own experiences through that pandemic and created their own everyday life that was a performance and how the after effects of that or even to going back to like the medieval literature said you know kind of made those connections and it is about theater it comes back to those stories it comes back to those narratives it comes back to the performance and it is so amazing to see how the word itself performance itself holds all of this and so much more uh that we don't even have time and maybe and that comes up in all the following uh 
episodes of this of just just unwinding what themes around it that it, it's just so amazing to see that connect of just performance and narrative and when we pick up one specific theme or facet of it everybody has something so different to tell Obviously, right now, I'm kind of stuck on Doom. I really like that piece, that facet that has come out of it. For me, what we're doing as scholars here and what I, and what happened for me as a listener, Saloni, on one sense, it could be really bleak that the life cycle is as easy as changing clothes, or it could be that it is as joyous as changing a costume. It is as fluid as changing a costume. So with each of your stories, I felt like I went so far into what could be perceived as dark that I felt less alone at the end of it. So Ben, when you're talking about these literary works, you know, and you think about that this is the Black Death period, this is like when it's really showing up for people. And there's something really dark and lonely about that. But death will come for all of us. And we are not alone in that. Of course, the social conditions are different. And I think you made a good point about death stopping to speak to the worker, but also the king, right? And in Anna's piece, gosh, the, the potential heaviness of going on a tourist tour of a cemetery, that has a real doomscape feel to it. And yet in that story, he stops and he communes with each family at each grave. A professor shows a piece of his body to say, the only way out of this is together. No, what we need to hear right now and what the humanities can offer us is that we are not alone. I really love, love that. I was really struck by a couple of things. One, Salona, you talked about the interconnectedness of the material and the spiritual. And I think there's ways that each of us are kind of grappling with whether it's a spiritual element or our, our narratives and the material consequences of choices that are made about words that are used. You know, in my case, thinking a lot about who is labeled as a terrorist and why and, you know, how these kinds of labels have such consequences. The performance aspect of what the body is doing in death also. And Ben talked about the art of dying. And that's a phrase that I think is, is sticking with me. It resonates so much. I want to think more deeply about in my context, the art of dying, but also the art of grieving, what the people who are left do with that to honor those, those legacies. Bethany, you've exactly touched on, Sa'id was taking me to the cemetery to to honor life and to advocate for life, to say that this needs to end, these conditions of death need to end. And, and there's, there is a hope in that. I'm so glad that you made these connections between influenza and COVID that really brought it home for me because there's also this question, who is going to tell the COVID story? And I've been thinking about that just as a person who's experienced this, wondering when do we memorialize? We don't. And what does that mean about how we honor this era that we've all lived through? By telling the story of influenza, we are marking unmarked graves. We are doing what Ben said. We are commemorating with our work. We are the memorializers then. That also takes me back to the question that Anna asked us, like, it's the responsibility of telling those stories of, like you said, memorializing it. You know, many of us and many of the listeners are also like with, with what's happening in the world right now kind of questioning what their responsibility is and, and what they're seeing on social media and, and everything around us. And there's so much happening 
the question keeps coming back. It's like, what can I do? What is my responsibility? How can I add to it? And, you know, as scholars, we do it in our own ways. As, as researchers, we do it in our own ways. How does it change me? What's the further responsibility? You know, oh, we've written about this and, and I'm glad that we're having this conversation and it is such an amazing and safe space to have this conversation and understand each other's perspectives, making that a little bit of change and, you know, and having that, just putting a thought in, even if in, in one one listener's mind, if there's a thought of uh, the impact of death, you know, even even that it's amazing how listening to, you know, all, all three of yours, I had goosebumps I was like in in a way again uh I mean it, it might go a little more personally but I have I am grieving right now I, uh, and and it, it is of my father so and that is one of the things where I think Anna's narrative hit I know and it's nowhere close to it but at the same time these stories are uh, sent it out to the world of of putting ourselves in that place putting ourselves in that situation and rethinking how which how should we react and how should we advocate make ourselves heard or even have have a perspective have a voice I think that's so beautiful, Saloni, and it reminds me also of in hearing the themes that were coming out for you all that, you know, Saloni, you mentioned kind of the performances happening in the story that I'm telling. And one of those performances, probably the one I'm most aware of is my own. What does it mean to walk through the cemetery and to have what feel like such small utterances it feels so insufficient because it's hard to hold all of these things and i think we also really see that and face that in the present moment one of the things we can do and ben's work shows us that as humans we've been doing this for a long time is to think together through poems through music through these ways that we kind of lift up our souls To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to The Novelty of Doom. Your hosts and speakers have been Bethany Johnson, Saloni Mahajan, Anna Johnson, and Ben Hoover. Our music for the trailer is Hopeful Start by John Bartman, and all other sounds and effects are under common license. We hope you join us again soon for another venture into the world of calamity.